So, Jay, do you think superheroes ever get starstruck around each other? Uh, sure, Miles. All the time. I mean, even Cyclops has a Captain America teddy bear. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 425 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to some truly delightful late 90s comics. We are going to be doing some more X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. Yeah, this is the tragically abortive Siegel and Kelly run. Oh, it is so good. I'm not saying, like, every issue is an absolute banger, but we're going to be covering two two-part stories, one from each book today, that are great. And I don't know, I mean, I guess we could, because these stories are largely separate, like, group all of the uncanny together in an episode, or, well, multiple episodes, all the adjectiveless in a handful of episodes, but... I kind of like doing these two books side by side, because clearly the writers were very heavily coordinating. Like, you will often see some of the characters in one book, some of the characters in another, unless they all happen to be in Westchester at the same time. It really does make it feel like a larger lived-in X-universe, and specifically an X-Men universe. This team is cohesive in a way they haven't been, which is kind of weird, because, like, they've just been going through a big restructuring. As you mentioned, the two writers were working really closely together during this time, and you can really feel that in the books, because even when they're not overlapping plot and character-wise, they're very, very tonally aligned. Very much. I mean, we could still tell, like, say, Siegel dialogue from Kelly dialogue, and very much, say, Pacello pencils from the uh, Pacheco and Onslaught of Fill and Artist pencils on the other book, but still— Onslaught of Fill and Artists, really? You know, they all amalgamated into one giant one. Like, Dark Claw. That's a different amalgam. Wow, wow. You're just just pulling in all the words here. We're a podcast. That's what we do. I thought we explained X-Men. Oh, well, I guess we should probably do some of that. So, let's start out by talking about what happened previously on X-Men. Alright, so the X-Men are starting to finally settle into their new post-Operation Zero Tolerance status quo. They get used to their new members and rebuild the Xavier Institute, which, as you may recall, was stripped of even its wallpaper by OZT. The team still consists of Old Standby Storm, Wolverine, Beast, Iceman, Rogue, and the still-written-as-an-Ostra-Kid despite having led two teams for years, Cannonball. But we've got a few new folks. We've got Cecilia Reyes, a grumpy ER doctor with force field powers who really just wants to go back to her old job. We have Maggot, a young South African man whose digestive system is two big metallic slug bugs and who hides his pain with charm and humor. And we've got Mero, a former sewer-dwelling Morlock who grew up in a parallel universe and grows big bone spurs out of her body and has a bad attitude, TM. What about some of the previous members, though? Well, let's see. Cyclops and Phoenix, that's uh, Jean Grey's current codename, not the original Phoenix Force that impersonated Jean Grey in the 70s, have retired to Anchorage, Alaska after Cyclops was severely injured in the Operation Zero Tolerance event. But recently, Phoenix has started wearing her old Phoenix costume, which has Cyclops worried, because the last time we saw that costume, it was worn by the Phoenix Force itself, and as we all know from the Dark Phoenix saga, that ended in tragedy. There's more to it than that, which we're going to actually get to in this episode. Valid concerns. Anyway, another member of the original 5X-Men, Angel, is sort of doing better. 
On one hand, the evil metal wings Apocalypse gave him have burst apart to reveal that his previously amputated feathered wings have grown back. But on the other hand, he's kind of on the ropes in his relationship with his kinda girlfriend Psylocke. Yeah, she's having a weird time, because ever since the mystical dimension slash force slash cult slash boring plot point, the Crimson Dawn saved her life a while back, she's had shadow powers and a shadowy personality shift to match. Also a rad facial tattoo. Yeah, I, we were talking about this before the episode, uh, listeners, and Jay and I agree that probably the rad tattoo came first and the narrative justification came second. This is sort of the, the, what I think of as the cable principle. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That dude had, like, no backstory when he was created. Nope. And and now he's just a goldmine of, of, of continuity conundrums. He might win the cold open first prize. Strife, though. Hmm. Well, Strife is sort of cable. It counts. Anyway, Psylocke and Angel are off the team spending a lot of time working on their apartment in New York, which I get. Like, domestic life is really hard. Also, it keeps being wrecked by ninjas. Fucking ninjas. And that brings us indirectly to Uncanny X-Men number 356, Reunion. This issue is written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Bacciolo, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bacciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Deschain. And I want to start off our discussion of this arc by talking about the fact that the crows that are central to this story should really be ravens. And not, like, mystique. Just bird ravens. Right. Right, the Corvid kind. Anyway, lots more birds later, but for now, what characters are we following? Well, we've got Bobby Drake, Hank McCoy, and Warren Kenneth Worthington piled into a taxi cab, and they are in Anchorage, Alaska, on their way to Scott and Jean's house. That's right, it is an original 5X-Men story. I love original 5X-Men stories. Oh god, same. Well, when they're well-written. Like, I have, I have, I have very, very high standards for original 5X-Men stories. Fortunately, this meets them. Oh, it totally does. I mean, that's something we'll get back to more and more, but Steve Siegel just nails writing all of these characters, all five of them and their collective dynamic. Oh, Siegel's so good at X-Men. He's really, really good at character voices in this arc. Like, that's one of the things that I, I keep on just coming back to in my reading of this, is how much these feel like the versions of the characters in my head. Totally. Uh, our penciler, Chris Bichello, is also very good at drawing X-Men, and some of that's the characters. His designs are fun, even though Cyclops is, like, weirdly, gigantically beefy. But a lot of that's just the little things. Like, the fact that these characters are in a taxi cab heading to Anchorage, and the cab kind of has its wheels sort of curled up underneath it as it just bounces across the road. It gives it all a very playful feel. Unfortunately, it lacks the weird marginalia animals of uh, Generation X. You know, I was thinking about that, and I love that level of whimsy, but I feel like that might be a little too much for an X-Men book. It might distract from the character work and the genuine drama that's going on. Okay, but they could have been birds in this one, and it would have been extremely appropriate. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, listeners, you may recall from our past episodes about this run that Siegel was really building up a lot of bird symbolism all over the place. And originally, that was supposed to presage the return of the Phoenix Force, or of some aspect of the Phoenix Force within Jean Grey herself, this time actually really in her, not just impersonating her. Uh, that was nixed by editorial, so it never went anywhere, but we do, in the meantime, still have a great deal of bird stuff going on. In fact, this is an entirely bird-centric arc. So, um, speaking of birds and, and bird-adjacent things, Warren in the taxi cab is, is brooding because he thinks 
you know, things feel like they might be over with Betsy and maybe it's easier that way. Uh, Bobby, for his part, um, has grown a soul patch and is wearing a jester's hat, which latter feels a little on the nose, but you know what? Sure. He refers to his soul patch as his love patch, which, oh boy, Bobby Drake, you sure are Bobby Drake. Okay, I hate that, but I also kind of love that it's, it's, you know, there. Uh, Agreed and agreed. And they're on their way up because, um, as you may recall from previous coverage, Scott had called worried about something related to Jean's powers that he hadn't yeah, actually said. And the other three decided, because X-Men are terminally incapable of using phones properly, that the best way to resolve this was to fly up with no notice, which uh, was on Iceman's initiative. And to be fair, this is an extremely Bobby Drake move. It also is because of all the original five X-Men, while he doesn't often talk about it, I feel like he's maybe the most invested in those five as a unit. Yeah, that's that's actually why I think it's that, is that he is he is the one who is nostalgic for and very, very attached to the original team. Totally. So they don't get all the way to where they're headed because a crow smashes into the windshield and the driver, disoriented, then hits a moose and also a very nice totem pole. And where Bacello was all whimsical and fun before, now things are dramatic as shit. We see the title of the issue, Reunion, in torn letters, above this aerial view of the characters who are looking down at the dead moose next to their crashed taxi. It's so perfectly ominous. It's great. But also kind of inherently humorous, because moose, even dead, are kind of fundamentally slightly silly. I'm told that they're actually terrifying in person. They're, they're supposed to be They terrifying. are. They're really big. They're really, really fucking big. Like, the fact that the car and the moose hit and everyone in the car was fine is pretty miraculous. It's a really impressive taxi cab. It's made of an adamantium vibranium alloy. Anti-mooseum? Anti-mooseum. Even more powerful. So, fortunately for the the three out of five, um, Chris Miller shows up. Now, this is... Either the sheriff or a local policeman, um, it is inconsistent within these issues, which he is. And he shows up, he, he shoots the dying moose, and he offers them a ride when he hears where they're headed, because he is in fact the Chris of the Chris and Stacy, who were on the flight with Scott and Jean and turned out to be their neighbors. Uh, we should clarify, he shoots the moose, like, as an act of mercy. It's gonna die and it's to end its suffering. He's not just, like, a moose murderer running around shooting every moose he sees. That we know of. I, at least not on panel. Bobby, meanwhile, spots a weird guy in the bushes cawing and laughing, but the guy disappears at a second glance. Don't worry, though, he'll be back. Will he ever? Uh, there is a happy reunion, and everyone meets Stacy's sister Melissa, with whom Warren flirts, and Bobby attempts to flirt harder and fails catastrophically. As Jean, who has been on the receiving end of both of these attempts, says, Boys, let's not confirm Melissa's suspicions about New York men all at once. It's lovely. It's just the five of them together again, but there are these little touches everywhere that things might be off. And one of them is not mentioned here, nor was it mentioned the previous time we saw it. All of the snow has been shoveled out of their very large—I guess it's more like a parking lot than a driveway. It's huge. But it's been shoveled away in the shape of a phoenix icon. Uh, Miles, we call that a cul-de-sac. Cul-de-sac. That's a good word. Also the title of an excellent comic strip. Good, good, good. Actually, I think I learned the term cul-de-sac from uh, the 89 Batman movie. I don't remember how it was related, just that I learned it in context of that. So the, f- the word cul-de-sac, I guess it's multiple words, the phrase cul-de-sac has always had these like moody gothic vibes to it for me, even though it's not a particularly moody gothic thing. No, it's very, very subdivision-y. Moody gothic subdivision. 
Which reminds me, speaking of inconsistencies, um, Tarmacan Creek, where Scott and Jean live, is either a small town or a subdivision in Anchorage, and um, it varies. Maybe it's like Danny the Street, and things just change periodically. No, I, I think it's just just written inconsistently. Although, um, I looked up Tarmigans because again, another another bird name, and I wanted to see if there was any symbolic relation. Um, there is not, but they're very silly looking, and if you've never seen one, you should probably Google them. Also, it's got that silent P at the beginning of the word, like Patarmigan, which it's funnier to say it that way, even if it's wrong. Hmm. Let's stick with Tarmigan. Oh, fine. Now, speaking of things unsaid. That this visit was unannounced means that Scott and the other dudes have not had any time to get their stories straight, and it's very awkward, which they all deserve. Scott tries to salvage the situation by claiming that all of it was just a nice surprise the four boys put together for Gene. I, uh, the truth is I thought we five original X-Men needed some time together. Time to look back. A lot has changed since those early days. Too much, I think, in some ways, and... Well, I, I think it's time to take stock. That's all, really. Jean seems pretty aware that this is kind of bullshit, but she's also happy to see everyone, so she just wryly plays along and humors everyone. Again, we've talked about how well Siegel writes the original five X-Men, and I think Jean is his standout, especially because Jean is kind of a hard character to get right. To be honest, I think this may be my favorite Jean Grey, until we get years and years later, decades later, to Tom Taylor's X-Men Red. Damn. I really enjoy his Hank, too. I really like his Hank. Like, not only his writing of Hank, but the character Hank whom he writes. Yeah, no, Beast is really fun. Like, Beast can be kind of annoying sometimes, uh, but in this case, he's genuinely charming and also very much a person. These all feel like people. All of their quipping and stuff, it doesn't feel artificial the way it could in, like, a sitcom or something. And a lot of this issue is conversation, so the fact that that quipping and conversation works well is pretty critical to the success of the story that we're reading right now. Um, so Jean catches up with Warren downstairs, while Scott and Hank head up under the pretext of carrying luggage, and Scott explains what's actually going on. And his explanation is honestly kind of surprisingly functional for Scott. Yeah, he's grown a lot over the last number of years. Again, something Siegel gets very well. These characters have grown and changed, and they've actually learned. They aren't stuck in amber. Hank, I've known you, the three of you, longer than almost anyone. You're my family. The last time this happened, I watched alone. I trusted what you told me, going out of my mind, wondering what to do. When the end came, I stood on the moon's surface and watched the woman I love blown to ashes right before my eyes. And I regretted not telling people sooner, not getting her help when there was still time. So I'm doing that now. And Scott is especially concerned after what happened with Professor X becoming Onslaught with his powers going dark, which, I mean, you know, I get it. Like, it's still kind of shitty, but it's also kind of fair. Like, if, if you are living with the second most te powerful telepath on the planet who has had this happen before, and the most powerful telepath on the planet, whom you trusted implicitly, went evil and nearly destroyed the world. Like, I think you've got reason to be worried. And so uh, he's, he's doing this not as an intervention, but because he specifically wants the other three up there as a sort of reality check for himself, because they know Gene really well, and they'll notice if something is off. 
Also, that thing you said about taking stock of their current situation, their history as X-Men and as friends and as people, like, that's not not the case. That's a real thing he wants to do also, which, fair enough. So, I just, I fucking love the character dynamics in this arc. I love them so much. Um, This, you know, we talked a lot when we covered the original X-Factor, like the early issues, about, you know, the dynamics of these five people who had been teenagers together and didn't understand how to relate to each other as adults and didn't understand to sort of sort of how to relate to their their identity as superheroes as, as adults and as a team this is the same characters grown up further um with the relationships of people who've been through a ton of shit together and are finally together in a context other than the massively weird traumatic superhero stuff and are getting to actually relax and reconnect This is what I love to see in superhero comics, in a shared universe with linear continuity. Well, I mean, except all the time travel, but overall linear continuity. I like seeing these characters grow and change, and not just reset to the same damn status quo again and again, which you see way too often. I want that sense of progression, and that's, again, something that the art handles really well. A couple times, one time we'll get to shortly— But one thing it does during this, as they're all reminiscing, is we see uh, some panels of the X-Men meeting Jean for the first time from X-Men number one. And that means we get to see Bacello doing Kirby. Yeah, Bacello does a great version of Kirby's art, and even the colors are very much like old Silver Age-style coloring. It's great. So I'm going to quickly rattle off some other bases covered. Um, The Ptarmigan Creek subdivision has apparently displaced sacred Inuit grounds. Fucking uncool anchorage. Scott thinks they won't actually be in Alaska long, but he hasn't discussed this with Gene. Gene has searched the world telepathically and found no sign of Professor X, and the chimney is briefly blocked by, as it turns out, another crow that really should be a raven. So they send Angel up to investigate, and outside, Stacy and Melissa, those are, once again, uh, Scott and Gene's neighbor and her sister, um, see a big blonde bird, as Melissa puts it. Um, it's it's pretty great. Stacey doesn't have her contacts in, so it's just Melissa. Like, the X-Men are trying so hard to not give away the fact that they're A, mutants, and B, superheroes. And um, it fools everyone but Melissa. It's great. They're so bad at it, though. Like, it's patch-level bad. <laughs> right, exactly. So everyone goes out to dinner, but they're thwarted by a demonstration. Again, the local indigenous groups are shutting down the town in protest of the subdivision. I kind of like Beast's very brief line here. A staunch reminder that we aren't the only group being oppressed in this world. Yeah, let's uh, have it not just be a metaphor. Let's remember that there are lots and lots of kinds of oppression that are very literal and very direct. And Bobby, for his part, once again sees his weird dude, and this time there is dialogue. Julian the Crow God will make the world black with his shadow. He will rain down on his land and steal it back like he stole the sun and the moon. I know, because I am he who summons Julian. I am him. Listen to me. Julian comes. He comes from the north in numbers too big to ignore even now. Beware! But once again, Bobby is the only one who sees or hears him. Um, so we should say that we, we looked this up and we're not, we were unable to find a solid guide to the pronunciation of, of Julian's name, so we're, we're reading it phonetically in English. Um... And from everything I was able to find, um, he is in fact a raven god, not a crow god. 
And that makes sense because Chulian or Kulian is the Danaina or Tanaina word for Raven. And um, that tribe is actually an Alaskan tribe from vaguely around Anchorage. So um, yeah, nice, nice homework, Steve Siegel. Uh, while I was Googling, by the way, as a side note, I found a French movie called Chulian Histoire de Corbeau. Coincidence? I mean, well, Corbeau is the French word for crow, so I guess... I guess it is uh, not exactly a coincidence in a boring way. But still, Corbeau. Corbeau lives. They should be ravens, though. They should be ravens because of the stuff that we just discussed. And they also should be ravens because ravens are much more common in Alaska than crows. Yeah, I was asking my wife, Anna, who spent a while living in Anchorage, whether she ever encountered any, like, magic stuff or superheroes. And she said no, but uh, definitely many, many ravens, which are very large and very loud. They are. They yell gronk, specifically. Like the word gronk. They articulate it fairly clearly. Specifically gronk, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, gronking aside, Cyclops has big plans he wants to tell his friends about. I think it's time we reconsidered the Professor's dream, and maybe replaced it with our own. Again with the character growth. Right? Like, this is Scott taking baby steps towards the mutant revolution, and I I love it. Mm. I'm here for it. So good. But we're not just spending time gronking in Anchorage. Back in Westchester, some stuff is going on as well. Specifically, Wolverine still hasn't gotten rid of Sauron, who's now been transformed from a pterodactyl man back into a normal human since he hasn't been able to suck out any souls in a while. I question your use of the word normal to describe Carl Lycos. Well, less pterodactyly anyway. More human. Right, he, he is no longer a pterodactyl man in tiny jorts. And one of the things that Siegel does really well are fairly deft dialogue-based thematic transitions. So we get Logan saying to Sauron, But all it takes for you to go human to monster is one cold-blooded touch. Just as Rogue enters the next panel. She's been freaking out about her powers recently, as you may recall, after what happened with her absorbing all of Gambit's past and stuff and that going very poorly. And Logan asks Rogue if she wants to talk, just like he did with Maggot recently, just like he's done with a lot of people recently. Just like he showed up on Warren and Betsy's windowsill to do in the middle of the night once. I love how he's such a loner, but he also just really wants to talk through everyone's deep stuff. Logan is everyone's weird mom friend. No, he's specifically everyone's everyone's um, queer mentor friend. Yeah, no, for that conversation that you and Chris had, really nailed that, totally. Mm-hmm. But no, Rogue is off to go surveil Dr. Aggie. That's the doctor who she met up with recently in hopes of possibly curing her mutation to turn her human. Kind of like in that one X-Men the Animated Series episode that a bunch of listeners pointed out. And she confronts Dr. Aggie about the building he comes out of. This is a building run by a group called Mutopia. And he says, no, 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 that's some group of weirdos who say they want to make a perfect world for humans and mutants alike. But they seem super shady, and I told them to go kick rocks. Rogue still doesn't trust him, though, and as she's talking to him, something very interesting happens. Right, she calls him Cher before connect- correcting herself to Sugar. So she's still got Gambit in her head. And I love that detail. I love over-the-top dialect catchphrases as a method for determining current mental state. Oh my god, what if she were just switching between, like, Gambit's accent and her accent, and you had to figure out which it was? Oh man, throw in Cannonball's accent and it would just get so confusing. What if she just absorbed accents, not like minds and powers? (laughs) Uh, I mean, that seems, on the one hand, that seems less traumatic, but on the other hand, the way accents are handled in the Marvel Universe, maybe not. I mean, less traumatic for her, maybe. 
Well, anyway, she leaves, still not sure whether she can trust this guy, but it turns out he already knows a lot more about her than she told him. And he goes back to his lab to talk to his sister, you know, the one he cured from being a mutant and made into a human. And, um, yeah, she's a horrifying, misshapen, gray monster person in a big glass tube, so, uh, that's probably not gonna go great. You know what else isn't going great? What's that? Space stuff. Uh, we get a brief cutaway to Deathbird's out-of-control spaceship, because as you may recall, Deathbird, who is is the uh, sister of the Majestrix uh, Lalandra of the Shi'ar Empire, who has, has a major crush on Bishop, um, teleported the two of them away from the X-Men's last space adventure and has been telling him he's too injured to move, so she has more of a chance to make him fall in love with her. So he's actually aware of the deception and says, you know, I'm in love with you anyway. So she frees him from the weird medical machine he's been stuck in, and they team up to try to not crash into a nearby planet. And we'll get a lot more of that in a couple issues. I, I love them as a couple. They're so fucking weird together. Oh god, yes. We're on to Uncanny X-Men number 357, The Sky is Falling, written again by Steve Siegel, penciled this time by Dan Norton, with inks by Dexter Vines and Scott Hanna, colors by Steve Bucolato, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and D.L. I don't know who that is. I feel like somebody knows, but they're keeping it on the D.L. So no sooner have the original five finally sat down to the dinner than the crows and or ravens swarm the streets attacking people. Yeah, so this is basically that Hitchcock movie, The Birds, uh, which I guess is inevitable for a comics run where birds are so symbolic of what's going on with the character. Um, but it's not subtle. Like, Beast even says paging Mr. Hitchcock at one point later. Yeah, I don't think you can make a reference that popularly known without really kind of pinning it on. And Birdemic wasn't out yet. Has anyone seen that? Only the righteous, Jay. Only the righteous. Well, we know where I stand on that. So... The the O5 head outside to help, which they managed to do quite no- nicely without showing their powers, so good job, team. There's this great montage of each X-Men individually saving people from the birds, you know, still being incognito, not using powers. And we get a great feel for their approach tactically, but also their personality. It's wonderful, and it's it's sort of... And the depictions are very, I don't know, flattering, positive. Like, Siegel is describing them as these larger-than-life people, as these very much capital-H heroes— And that, contrasted with the fact that they're in civilian clothing, that they're not using powers, really does just get across how special these five are. Okay, but also Cyclops straight up punches a bird in the face. Oh god, he does, and the bird says squeet! That's a really good sound effect. Bird probably deserved it. Birds are jerks. So Bobby once again encounters the dude yelling about Chilean, and... Before he's able to pursue this lead further, they all get brushed out of the way by Chris the cop, who shows up and scares the birds away with a couple shotgun blasts. And Chris also knows who Bobby's been seeing. This is a local guy who goes by Moonwolf, who claims to be responsible for most natural and human-made disasters, and is clearly not quite operating in the same reality as his neighbors. And at the end of this conversation, Chris, Officer Miller, Sheriff Miller, whoever the hell he is— clearly catches a glimpse of Warren's feathers peeking out from under his coat. And this is supposed to be terribly foreboding, but, like, if you saw just, like, feathers coming out from someone's coat during a bird plague, like, would would mutant be really be your first thought? Like, what do you think is going through Sheriff Officer Miller's head here? Uh, you remember that play Titanic by Christopher Durang? Oh, Jesus. Wow, you went there. Hit. You were never an X-Men, Warren. We did it all with white bread and mirrors. 
Anyway, back at home, nobody's really sure what to do. I mean, this is a small town. They're trying to stay incognito, but if they use their powers or costumes or whatever, they'll clearly be the X-Men. And it's Jean, finally, who makes the call. We're X-Men. If this town is in danger, our responsibility is to save it first and worry about personal repercussions later. The conversation is interrupted when Melissa, the next-door neighbor's sister, shows up, uh, catching Warren with his wings out and Hank ineffectively hiding behind the sofa. And she's cool with this. She had already worked out that they're mutants, and she, it turns out, is, well, at least a bit of a mutant, too, if not a capital MX gene mutant. She has six toes on each foot and has gotten shit about it all her life. So even if it's not the same thing, she is, she is team odd guys out. And this is just so charming. Like, I love this tiny bit character. I don't even know if we ever see her again. She doesn't even have an entry in the Marvel database. But this dynamic, it's so it's so wonderful. Like, all the characters are kind of clustered around her, smiling, like Jean's hugging her, and Scott has his hand on her shoulder. And it's just so warm. Yeah, they're going to take her out back and kill her later because she knows their secret, but, you know. No, that would be, like, the uh, pre-Outback era of X-Men when Storm was in charge. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, this is the Silver Age. They'll just wipe her mind. Most likely. So the, tre- the so so she leaves again, and the team strategizes, and there's a great split page of Jean imagining them in their Silver Age costumes and then skipping up to the present versions of them. And it's it's a really simple trick, but damn, is it effective. Oh, yeah, just showing the, the weight of history. Just showing, like, the long distance between point A and point B. I was amused, though, that Angel actually has the exact same costume right now that he did in the Silver Age. Which I guess makes sense. I mean, he started wearing it to reminisce about the good old pre-Horseman of Death days. I mean, he could have worn his X-Factor costume. Although, I, I guess there were problematic aspects to that era, too. Dude's had a hard life. I mean, for a very privileged value of the term. Fair. So, uh, everybody splits up, which is a bad idea in a D&D game, but, uh, I guess it works out okay here. Right, so Bobby goes to confront Moonwolf, who it turns out in his magic bag is just carrying a bunch of birdseed. Angel and Beast discover that the birds have been encountering and drinking and bathing in poisoned water, and they stop the industrial runoff that's causing it. Jean finds an electric crow in the middle of the swarm, sending signals to the rest, and squishes it. And as the crows amass into one giant shadow crow, Scott, against medical advice, because he's not supposed to be using his powers, opens his visor up and fully blasts it. Oh, it looks so cool, this picture of, like, hundreds of crows clustering into this big humanoid crow god in the sky. It's, it's really badass. We only see this creature very briefly, but it's so cool looking. And ultimately, each of them is sure that what they did was the thing that stopped the crows, and we never find out what actually did or what the actual nature of the disturbance was, which I kind of like. Yeah, I I, I kind of love that. It's ambiguous. It's just weird, like, supernatural superhero universe stuff going on. Like, I like it also because that's not the point of this story. The superheroing isn't the point. The people are the point. So it kind of gives me the same vibes as the end of that X-Files episode, Blood? Ha! <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, yeah, last note is that Sheriff or Officer Chris Miller is an asshole about mutants, um, but is briefly chastised by a kindly elderly couple and thinks better of it. Well done, old folks. So, yeah, delightful original 5X-Men story that also advances the plot going on with Jean and her evolution into something that will never actually happen because editorial nixed it, but it's such good character work. And... Yeah, Siegel just has these characters down so hard. His next couple issues are also going to have the, the original five in Alaska. And I continue to just really 
really love those character dynamics and the way that he's writing them. But the other X-Book, Adjectiveless X-Men, is also great. Which is surprising, because this is Psywar, which I sort of think of as a nonsense event, but no, it's, it's actually really good. Yeah, nice little two-part story. So let's go to X-Men number 77, Stormfront. Written by Joe Kelly, with pencils by German Garcia, inks by Artie Bear, colors by Liquid, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And we open with some of that delightful Joe Kelly narration. It's like a Once Upon a Time situation about Storm the Goddess and Storm the X-Man. And it ends with... One day, they all died, and Storm was buried in their corpses. The end. And, uh, yeah, sure enough, it's, uh, Storm being covered by a bunch of skeletons wearing X-Men outfits looking really upset about the whole thing. Uh, Storm does. The skeletons don't really seem to have much of an opinion. I don't know, they look a little happy. Skeletons always look a little smiley. They like their work. I think it's because they can play the xylophone on their ribcages. Anyway, with that, we flash back to the beginning, as the narration calls it, as opposed to the end, to right where we left off at the end of the last Adjectiveless X-Men issue. Uh, remember, Storm received a package in the mail that turned out to be a talking stone figurine of her adoptive mom, Inet, from Kenya, who was telling her that she needed to come back and save her home from a great evil. Yeah, because, again, no one ever just calls the X-Men. Phone? P-Pahone? I don't understand. At this point, though, Storm does tell the X-Men, and we the readers, about a part of her life we haven't actually heard much about. That being that period of transition between when she was a street urchin thief in Egypt, in Cairo, to when she was a goddess in the plains of Kenya, in a small village. Apparently, Inet was the woman who adopted her, and who sort of helped her grow up a little, and who also never saw her purely as a goddess, but just as a person, as her daughter. And who also happened to be a magician. Yeah, that's just sort of thrown out there. Oh, by the way, she was a really good magician, too. Like, there's so much random magic crammed into Storm's backstory, and as we find out over the years, her ancestry, and it's just sort of like, I like that it's so commonplace that she doesn't even think to talk about it like it's a big deal. So... I feel like a lot of this is kind of, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm missing a word for this because I, the word I want to go to is Orientalism, but is, is exotification and, and othering of, 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 you know, basically writing all of this stuff in Storm's background, specifically because she's from and grew up in Africa. You know, you may be right about that. That's true. I mean, the fact is we're talking about comics from the nineties and a lot of the stuff just wasn't really thought about in those terms. Not that it shouldn't have been thought about, but there's a lot of oversight in that regard. Yeah, there were a lot of conversations that weren't happening on the scale or with the level of publicity, I think, that they're happening now. Well done, present-day humanity. In this scene, though, the art is great. Now, this is German Garcia. We've seen Garcia's uh, work as a fill-in artist before. It's pretty good stuff, actually. And here, it's the staging, it's the panel structure, it's the uh, camera angles, for lack of a better term, that really works. I mean, Storm, as she describes, this is staring out past the plants in her attic to the sunrise out the window, but it also cuts to close-ups of Logan examining his claws with schlicked sound effects as the bone claws go in and out, of maggot slugs on the ground investigating the wrapping paper the package was in with seal sound effects. I love the idea of them acting like huge, horrible cats. Oh, I think they are, yeah. And we see Cannonball sifting through the sand that the statue just dissolved into because magic stuff. Like, 
that's a great way to maintain visual interest in what's essentially a big dump of backstory, a big dump of exposition. But it's also nice just to get little tiny bits of character traits from all of these characters, the slugs being kind of playful and investigative, Logan being restless, Cannonball being curious. So Storm, of course, gives the requisite, I won't ask you to come with me, this is my problem and my problem alone speech, and the X-Men respond with the requisite, shut up, of course we're coming. Although Cecilia Reyes is uh, worried about running into more demon dogs, like from the last arc, uh, and Maggot is not eager to head back to Africa again because his backstory is pretty tragic in South Africa. But I will say, Jeffeth, South Africa is like 5,000 miles away from, from Kenya. I don't think you're going to run into any of that stuff, but I guess it's really more thematic than geographic. And... Then Psylocke just sort of steps out of the shadows, which is a thing that she can do now. She can teleport through shadows. And we haven't seen much of her around the X-Men lately. Like, she comes and goes a little bit. She was there for the trial of Magneto and Antarctica, but she is very much not an X-Man at this point, in the same way that Angel is not an X-Man. And without warning, she teleports everyone away, because not only can she teleport through shadows, she can bring whoever she wants with her. Cecilia is understandably freaked out about this, and Sam does his best to comfort her about, well, it's relative normalcy. Nothing to learn, Cecilia. Reckon I used to teleport like this three, four times a week in the old days. Of course, back then it was a puddle of light instead of shadow, and we had to stop over in hell any time we wanted to get anywhere. Not helping, Kentucky. Definitely not helping. Kelly writes great dialogue, and I really like the way he writes Psylocke. So often, ever since her transformation into her ninja body, she's just been written as this, like, scary, occasionally seductive, violent, cold lady. That's been even more the case since the Crimson Dawn changed her into being a darker character. But Kelly remembers, wait a minute, this is A, a British woman, and B, a British woman who spent most of her life as, like, a fashion model and a spy. She's got this sort of cheerful, proper way of speaking, which, while yes, it does contrast with her appearance as scantily clad ninja, is, I think, pretty true to Betsy Braddock. And honestly, I think for this stage of the character's life, you should be playing up that juxtaposition, that contrast. I think this version of Betsy is probably truest to the sort of hybrid identity that she's developed than anything we've seen come before. Agreed, yeah. I mean, Siegel really got the five original five X-Men right. Kelly gets a lot of these characters very, very right. As the characters teleport away, Marrow is ready to be all bitter as she watches them go, and is already thinking about the trouble she's going to get up to, but uh, there's the wonderful cartoon-like panel of Logan's hand just reaching out from the shadow portal and just dragging her down through it, so uh, she's coming too. So, the team is split in the teleport. Wolverine and Psylocke are attacked as they fall through the sky by a bunch of dudes in loincloths with machetes, all of whom have very sort of spider-evocative tattoos and, and cornrows. Yeah, like, the cornrows, the braids come from the backs of their heads and then go around their faces like spider legs. They kind of remind me of facehuggers from Alien, though. But, like, in reverse, then. Uh, back of head huggers. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? Or go into the tongue the same way. So they're fighting in the sky before the attackers turn into sand. Everyone else is in the village. Marrow, of course, is taunting Storm about where her servants are, where her palace is. Marrow hates Storm so much. And as they banter, as they bicker, they're also distracted. They don't notice Cannonball disappearing. What they do notice is all of the villagers from this village sitting in a circle, all glassy-eyed, chanting Ananasi, while covered in, like, flies and dirt. So, 
this is this is um another sort of lost in translation <laughs> deity um spelled like this the the only other context in which which we've be, be, been able to find that uses specifically the a n a n a s i spelling are the were spiders in the werewolf of the apocalypse rpg from white wolf however anansi a n a n s i is a west african spider trickster god and in this case, Anansi is the masked, giant, spidery figure made of sand holding up Storm's adoptive mom, Inet. And she's speaking in rhymed couplets in these green-lined, wavy word balloons about Storm's upcoming wedding to Ananasi. And Storm is just furious about this. Like, a big monster has done this to the villagers from the village she spent so much time in, has, like, possessed her adoptive mom, basically— and Ananasi, meanwhile, is just gleefully and delightfully villainous. And he's speaking in the same green line balloons as as Inet, um, which which pretty pretty well gets across that he's possessed her. A delicious queen for this old spider, but we're going to have to work on her delivery. When confronting a being of immense power and ageless evil. The hero is supposed to ask, what do you want? At which point I, being said evil, reply somewhat clumsily, Across the globe I had Inet send out a summons you were certain to get. A call to a goddess, a desperate plea to bring fresh blood to my kingdom. A bride here to me. At which point I shift down to a raspy gasp of a voice and explain without delay that I intend to absorb your legendary power as I have absorbed the souls of your people. Then it's cackle, cackle, cackle. I want your power, your life, your soul. Bada bing, bada boom. This campy motherfucker. Oh, he's so great. This is a villain who just loves being a villain, and I respect that. Is it just me... Or does he have strong, like, proto-sassy sinister vibes? Oh yeah, there is a strong level of sass. There is a strong, like, supervillain diva thing going on here, and it is a delight. But specifically, like, the voice and the level of combination of, like, old-school supervillain declamation and kind of modern references and off-the-cuff humor... I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, stories like this, of who this character turns out to be, lodged themselves in the back of Kieran Gillen's head, and that's part of what led to his version of Sinister coming out into the world. I mean, if there's a character who's going to lodge himself in the back of your head, it's definitely this one. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. So Ananasi sends the souls of the other X-Men away, and, um, yeah, things are different. Suddenly, Marrow, sitting there with Cecilia and with Maggot, doesn't look like her old self. She has no bones sticking out of her body. And normally, they're sticking out every which way. Like, they make her look very monstrous. She's conventionally pretty. And Maggot Slugs are gone. He doesn't need them anymore. He doesn't feel that level of hunger. Ananasi is basically promising them their heart's content. He can fix everything for them. Although that's slightly called into question by the fact that he has Wolverine, apparently uh, back from his fight in the sky, naked on all fours in a collar. But like, not in a, well, I would say not in a kinky way. It's, it's pretty kinky. It's not like specifically kinky. It's more evil, you know, like he's turned him into a sort of beast man. I guess Like incidentally kinky? 
yeah, yeah. Although I guess that's the thing with kink is kind of anything can be kinky depending on what you're into. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is Ananasi, despite promising uh, making everyone's wishes come true, is um, clearly an at least somewhat malevolent force. So where's Cannonball? He disappeared. You would see sunk through the sand earlier in the village. Is he also a part of this tableau? Uh, no, he's elsewhere in a coal mine, wearing a mining outfit, and getting yelled at by a zombified version of his dead dad who wants to kill his son for playing at man's work. So, yep, it's one of those nightmare scenarios that might give us a clue as to what's going on. So Psylocke, meanwhile, drops down from the sky and with her psychic knife cuts Ananasi in half. So he's no god, he's just a powerful telepath who's really good at terrifying and manipulating people. And he tries to do the same with her. You know, he talks about how she's been rewritten and possessed so much that she's barely real. And Silex's like, no, I got no time for this shit. Uh, grabs Storm and drags them both onto the astral plane. And at that point, Storm runs over to Inet's soul and starts to save it. And Psylocke does some badass shit. She turns into a giant astral version of herself, wearing her old Lady Mandarin armor from when she was first transformed into her ninja form, but like a psychic, translucent version of it. And it is time for a giant psychic duel. Ananasi, however, uses what seems to be his main weapon, which is rude manipulation. So... He has been taunting Psylocke about how she's just a substitute Jean Grey, she's a failure, and goads her into sticking her psychic knife right in his face, except it turns out it's not his face. It's the face of one of the villagers' souls, and they've been arranged in a mystical circle, which projects energy out through the globe. This is the inciting event that's going to shut down telepathy, but for now, what it does is open a conduit from the mind of was apparently on Anasi to every mind on Earth. Psylocke's psychic form is scrambled into a monstrosity, and Ananasi reveals himself as, of course, the Shadow King. That's right. The old telepathic foe of Professor X, of Storm, of Karma, of the X-Men, of the New Mutants, of everybody. The character who was going to be Claremont's big bad in one version of what Claremont was planning for the end of his run. And whom we haven't seen or heard anything of since the Muir Island saga. Well, there was one brief story where the Shadow King showed up to possess that kid Jamil in uh, a Kandra story that was set in Egypt. Right, right. But yeah, for the most part, that's the last time most characters have seen him. He's been presumed dead since then. And certainly, he's without a body. The body of Amal Farouk, the guy, the, the body he was wearing for so long, is long gone. The Shadow King is just a purely psychic entity, which kind of means he's a big purple muscly dude with glowing eyes and an enormous grinning mouth with, like, incredibly long, sharp teeth that take up about half his face. He's pretty scary looking, as much as I will always prefer the original visual of the Shadow King from the show Legion as my number one. Yeah, I mean, Legion does the Shadow King, I think, better than pretty much anything else has. Oh, pretty much. This Shadow King is very specifically, in both appearance and tone, a Shadow King who I want to see do, like, a big musical villain number. Oh god, you are not wrong. I'm, I'm actually reminded a little bit of uh, Hades from the Disney Hercules movie. I will admit that I've only seen that once and that a fairly long time ago, so I will take your word for it. 
That brings us to X-Men number 78, Stormfront Part 2. Written by Joe Kelly, with pencils by German Garcia, inks by Archie Bear, colors by Liquid, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So, um, yeah, all the humans in the world are losing their minds and killing each other, thanks to the psychic whammy that the Shadow King manipulated Psylocke into hitting the world with. Uh, the Shadow King is, like, super into this. He wants to rule the world, yes, but he wants to rule a world of madness. He just wants psychic chaos. He wants, basically, malice. Evil. Now that he's not in a body, that's kind of his deal. He is just a force of pure malice. He's almost like the incarnation of it. In that regard, he almost is a god. Something that that this arc, both the plot and, and his tone, really emphasize beautifully are his inhumanity. Very much. And even the story of how he survived the Muir Island saga, uh, and I guess came back for that story about Jamil that nobody remembers, uh, he basically says that, yeah, as long as any human has a single dark thought in their head, he can't truly die. So he is literally the concept of malice, which I actually kind of love and actually kind of fits a lot of where I think Claremont probably would have gone with him. Yeah, it's fun. And also now with Xavier gone post-onslaught, he's finally safe to escape back into the world. Yeah, Xavier was his nemesis and the only person he was really ever scared of. He's definitely not scared of Psylocke, he just shatters her distorted astral form, and then goes off to try to get some followers. He goes back to the three newest X-Men. He offers Cecilia her old life back at the hospital. He even says he could give her all of the surgical knowledge of the world to make her the greatest surgeon of all time. He offers Maggot a world where he could control his powers and could be a beloved hero. And there's like this really charming picture of Maggot looking all buff in like a spandex traditional superhero costume. Even that little tiny forelock of hair that is the only hair he has on his bald head is like super giant and dramatic and blowing in the wind. Aww. And Marrow could be pretty. She could fall in love. And the image we see here is her lying down in the grass, having what seems to be a romantic picnic with Cannonball. But what I really love is as she's thinking about this, as this is going through her head, what her physical body in the real world is saying. Pretty, pretty. Yes. Kiss, kissy. And the Shadow King, yeah, makes this pitch. These are facts. I can give you all you deserve. Create the lives you have earned through your struggle and sacrifice. All I require is your allegiance. Discuss. So they're worried about the others, and he tells them, I'm not even, I mean, maybe like quarter truths about what's going on. Sam is uh, bonding with his father. Which is to say, being beaten to death by him. Wolverine is being stripped of his bestial nature to reveal the man inside. Which is to say, being torn apart by various shadow creatures. Storm is getting over her claustrophobia. Yeah, I remember how she's buried with the skeletons of her friends deep underground. Good times. And Psylocke is... Psylocke's actually okay. Um, thanks to her Crimson Dawn powers, she is now a being of pure shadow. And she's also able to use that shadow to save Inet's dying soul by, by coating her in it, and somehow the shadow protects them from the Shadow King's powers. And I kind of love this. I kind of love the idea that we're fighting shadow with shadow, but a different kind of shadow. Like that idea of a protective, heroic shadow that can, that can be channeled for good. I don't know, it's just a really fun contrast against the literal Shadow King's evil malice and darkness. It's very cool. So off this tiny band of heroes goes to rescue everybody from their mental prisons, starting with Storm. 
And Storm, in her own head, inside this vision even, is just a little girl. She's small and she's traumatized. She's guilty about not saving her parents, about ripping out Marrow's first heart. Well, okay, fair enough. I'd be guilty about that too. About Yeah, that failing. was a dick move. It was a dick move. And about failing here, this little girl says, no, this is punishment that she deserves. And Inette tells the tale of, of Storm first causing a drought in one place by bringing rain to another in her early goddess days, and then making amends by figuring out how to reestablish that balance and growing up and says, no, that's what you need to do here. This isn't about punishment. This is about fixing your mistakes. Exactly. And for so many of these characters, that's so appropriate. Realizing that no matter how dark they've gotten, no matter how many bad decisions they've made, it's kind of going to be okay. I think that also fits very nicely with what we were just talking about, with Psylocke using all of this shadow, all of this darkness, to heal, to help, to protect. So, Shadow Psylocke, though, she does still feel really guilty. She apologizes for screwing everything up, but Storm won't hear it. And we... You know, with their bond reestablished, they interrupt the Shadow King trying to take over the new kids, and the Shadow King offers to make Psylocke his queen. In a weird reversal, like, Storm Storm is right there. Well, he already tried to make Storm his queen once, and that didn't work out, so I guess... But he just... didn't, because that was just to lure Psylocke. I don't know. I mean, I feel like he would have taken her as a brainwashed Shadow Queen. She's very powerful, after all. Well, I, I'm just thinking, yeah, that the, the typically supervillains go straight for Storm. You know, the Shadow King can multitask, all right? Well, to a limited extent, and that's how Psylocke is finally able to beat him. So he tries to show off. Um, Psylocke is, is, is baiting him, and he tries to show off by taking over and corrupting every mind on Earth at once. At which point, his consciousness is spread thin enough that she's able to use the distraction to pull the other X-Men back. At which point, Marrow frees Cannonball from his own mental prison. So, yeah, all the X-Men are free. And she thinks back to that story Inette just told to pull Storm out of her psychic funk. Rain in one place leads to a drought elsewhere. Right! So while the Shadow King is distracted, he's not defending his psionic heart, which literally looks like a heart amid all the goopy shadow stuff. Which, you know, whatever, astral plane, metaphor. And she grabs that heart and pulls it inside her own mind. She traps the Shadow King completely, a creature of pure mind, inside the prison of hers. Well, and inside a lair of the Crimson Dawn Shadow. That as well, yeah. Now, that's awesome. The Shadow King is defeated. The Shadow King is genuinely defeated. Like, for years and years, he'll be imprisoned. But the downside is, if Psylocke ever uses her telepathy again while he's imprisoned, then he'll escape. This, the integrity of this psychic shadow prison will be broken. And she's not going to use her telepathy again. She's not really going to have access to it again until after her death in 2001 and her resurrection four years later. Right. But she's pretty chill about the whole thing. I guess that means retirement now, doesn't it? It'll be a sacrifice, but a worthy one. I'll keep warm at night knowing you're trapped within the shadows of the Cyplane, haunted by the knowledge that you were definitively vanquished by, how did you put it, one insignificant X-Man. And incidentally, you look ravishing entombed in darkness, love. Kelly Psylocke is so good. And the heroes have won. Everybody is free from the psychic plane. Everybody's back in their bodies, X-Man and Villager alike. Um, and Cannonball takes the opportunity to thank Marrow for saving him. Marrow? Um, that, that was some fancy fighting in the Psyplane. 
ripping my dead pot to shreds like you did. So, uh, I just wanted to say... Don't expect me to watch your back every time we go out Kentucky. Next time you're, you're not careful, you lose that soft head of yours. Thanks. And Marrow thinks to herself as she walks away with like a sly little smug grin on her face. Smooth. Nice. He's into me. I love this! Like, I know she's killed dozens and dozens of innocent people, but this version of Marrow is so much fun! And everyone's okay. No powers for Psylocke, but we get a happy ending, and the Shadow King, for his part, is going to be gone for the next seven years. Um, he's gonna show up next, um, I think, in New Excalibur number one, possessing a version of Charles Xavier, and, um, yeah, that's, that's gonna be the next we see of him. So, yeah, big significant event in two tidy, concise issues. I love these short stories that tell the story they want to tell and then are just done and they move on. And with that wrapped up neatly, you've got questions. Devin asks via email, if you could give any X character another X character's iconic hairstyle, who would you choose? So I would give Adam X the Extremes hair to Namor. And I would do this because I believe that Namor is one of very few characters who could actually pull it off really well. God, you know, he, he really could. But the big question is, would Namor then wear the backward baseball cap on top of it? He would not. Ah, well. Uh, well, I would give Wolverine's hair to Beast. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'd give Quicksilver's hair to Magneto. Uh, wait. Okay, no, but for real, I actually think Jubilee's hair, like that sort of short, slightly spiky, tousled look, that would look awesome on Jean Grey. Uh, Ultimate Jean has that haircut. Uh, hers is a little flatter. It's not quite as, as, uh, tously, but, uh, similar. But I'm talking 616, Jean. Because, like, think about it. She's gone through so much, so many shifts, so many versions of herself, and she's never done the most traditional thing you do when you want to reassert who you are or acknowledge a change by getting a radically different haircut. Like, I think she would look pretty good. Uh, I also think Nightcrawler could wear the hell out of Longshot's mullet. It wouldn't be quite as straight, but I think it would work. But I'm also a noted mullet apologist. I've actually been recently running around Star Wars Jedi Survivor with a mullet on Cal, uh, and I'm never going to change it. Okay. This is a subtle shift, but Rachel Summers' hound-era short spiky hair with the rat tail would look really good on Wolfsbane. It would pretty much just be adding the rat tail to similar hair, but I think it would look really good, and it would be a nice little subtle thing that could add just a tiny bit of rebellion and individuality for Rain. I'm sticking with mine. Adam X on Namor. That's hair. Hair. Adam X's hair on Namor. <laughs> I mean, Adam X on Namor. I'm sure that's somewhere on the internet. That seems like one of the less likely ships. I guess I know what we have to look up on AO3 after we're done recording. Follow your weird heart, Miles. Hmm. An anonymous listener asks via Tumblr, If you guys were in charge of the eventual MCU slate for X-Men, which characters would you give their own solo Disney Plus series? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think the one I would most like to see would be the Laura Kinney Wolverine. But really, even if you altered some of the more egregiously traumatic aspects of her backstory, it's still, like, violence is such a big part of her deal, and trauma is such a big part of her deal. I don't know that Disney Plus would really be a good fit. If you tried to tone it down, I don't think it would work. Uh, I think Netflix actually might have been. Uh, really, though, um... I want to see Vampire Mom Jubilee. I want her to have, like, a slice-of-life little uh, episodic sitcom. Um, uh-huh. 
I just miss her being, I know she's still a mom and that's great, but I miss her being a vampire. I am one of the people who will stand up for that as a really good story move for her, even though it came from a silly, silly event. Now I'm thinking about Curse of the Mutants, and I just, that's a place, that's a weird place for my brain to go. Sort of quick, Sandy. I love Curse of the Mutants. Um, But uh, I think the one that would probably work best, in my opinion, would be Gambit. I think he'd be great in a solo show. You'd need an actor who had the intense charisma necessary to make him engaging rather than just being douchey. Toby Schmitz. I don't know who that is. Specifically, to make Gambit work on screen, you want him to be as close as possible to Toby Schmitz as Jack Rackham in Black Sails. Okay. I I haven't seen it, but I I trust your your casting knowledge. I am absolutely certain of this. Another thing to look up after we're done recording. Uh, I think for this show, though, you would really have to lean into the weird parts of his backstory and his setup with, like, the Thieves and Assassins Guild. Like, don't even try to make this realistic. Just have a bunch of, you know, mystical, quasi-religious secret society nonsense going on. So to me, speaking of religious secret society nonsense, um, magic feels like a really obvious choice, given that she, in fact, has her own origin miniseries, and also given just, like, how much weird side plot stuff she's got. In fact, I think we discussed this in context of listener questions before. Um, Bishop might be another good choice, and I think there's a lot to play with. The whole unstuck-in-time thing is fun, and it also creates a lot of room for Easter eggs from things like, for instance, Loki. Oh, get the Time Variance Authority in there. Yeah, he does try to change the past a couple times. Mm Mm-hmm. But in general... I think, you know, for all that side stories are fun, X characters and stories tend to work best in team settings and contexts, um, with, with solo stories as sort of brief marginal tangents. So I could almost see something working as like an anthology show, too. That could work really well, yeah. But I think you would need a core X-Men show or movie franchise or whatever. Ideally, show. I think X-Men would work best as a show, as sort of the central part, as the anchor of it all. Then you can branch out. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. You can check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. In two weeks, it's Munchausen by Proxy in Space. With Bishop and Deathbird. Hang on one sec, there's a motorcycle. Or, actually, I think it's a helicopter. Or a motorcycle with helicopter blades, maybe. Might be a helicopter carrying a motorcycle. True, true, true. Or a helicopter riding a motorcycle and wearing a leather jacket. Or Logan jumping a motorcycle through a helicopter, which subsequently explodes. (laughs) It's probably that. Um, Anyway, I guess it exploded because it's gone now. Quiet explosion.